I read comics, show number 44. everyone gives you cards? No. Did I annoy you all enough with that? I'm sorry. One of my most favorite moments on Foster's with Blue whining as only Blue can. See, that's why I say he is the most annoying character on TV, and that is why I love him so much. And that is why he is my little icon when I'm on AIM. Um, So here's a bunch of stuff, and I'm going to do all the plugging stuff at the beginning because I'm ending this a little bit differently. Um... First thing, WonderCon is coming up in like a month, and I'm definitely going. So if you are and you want to try to meet up, let me know and send me some email. Um, Speaking of cons, I was invited to be at a con, to be like a guest at a con. And that's Silicon, which is October 5th through the 7th this year in San Jose, California. Um, Get it? Silicon Valley. That's why it's called Silicon. And it's not so much a comics convention as a general um, science fiction convention, but they're going to have comic stuff. And uh, they also invited Jenny from the um, Phantom Power podcast, which is awesome because I really want to meet her and also Molly Kylie, my friend who I haven't seen for like two years. So I'm really looking forward to seeing her and um, other people like Dame Darcy. And I'm a pretty big fan of her. So I'll bring some of my stuff and get it signed. And um, Jim Mafood, who has done a bunch of different comics and I have some of them and I haven't kept up on what he's doing lately. He had and probably still has a, a line called um, Stupid Comics, which I really, really liked, and um, I wonder if he's still doing it. So I need to catch up on that. But if you're going to Silicon, let me know, and maybe we'll meet up there too. I heard through the grapevine, as I mentioned before, that there might be a podcasting panel at uh, WonderCon, but I don't know. And then um, there is going to be some sort of panel thing at Silicon, but I don't know any more about it than that. But I will let you know when I hear about these things. But I'm pretty excited, and I'm probably going to skip Comic-Con because of these other two cons. Um, So that's a cool thing. Uh, I have some good stuff to review. I also wanted to mention a couple things that I had blogged. I want to try and blog a little bit more at the show blog. One is uh, (laughs) a screen cap that somebody had done from the Silver Surfer trailer that I had posted last time around, which is awesomely awesome, and I can't wait to see the movie. And uh, apparently, you know, with people who have too much time on their hands going through it frame by frame, Silver Surfer 
um, has a dick and balls. And you can see them pretty clearly in this screen cap, what I posted. So um, go and look at that because it's pretty cool. I don't think it's going to be like that through the movie. Boy, wouldn't it be great if it was, but, you know, they won't do that. Um, and the other thing that was really funny that just came out of the blue was I, I was reading The Onion, and I loved The Onion, and I my eye was caught by this headline that says, New Archie Graphic Novel Explores Rich Inner Life of Jughead, which just cracked me up. So it's one of those short blurb things. But the funniest part was this quote right in the middle of it. Um, Readers will be fascinated by Forsythe's agonizing realization that his love of food was really just a substitute for loving himself, something he deems impossible due to his guilt over the premature death of his baby sister, Forsythia, and the predatory sexual overtures he suffered at the hands of Mr. Flutesnoot, author and cartoonist Adrian Tomine said. <laughs> so the onion made an Adrian Tomine joke. Oh my God, it's so obscure, and it was so funny. So I just love that, that they made that kind of joke. About him. And I love Adrian Tomine. Um, but, uh, you know, optic nerve is great. But it's true. That's exactly the sort of thing he would say. So that just cracked me the hell up. Um, let's see. Oh, here's the thing I meant to mention a while ago. So I'm, I'm still kind of slowly working my way through the system of trying to get whatever demographics there are on people who read and buy comic books. And it's, it's a slog, you know. Um, I recently was told by uh, somebody who works at a comic book company that um, they, they're a small company and they don't have numbers at all. And it's difficult because people buy comics in lots of different ways and they don't have distribution numbers. So their estimation of who is reading the comics is sort of based on, is anecdotal or what they get, uh, say, as a result of uh, letters that are sent to them. So, but they don't know. They're just kind of going on a gut feeling. So, Interestingly enough, while I was thinking about all this, um, I got a survey to fill out. And I I do surveys sometimes because, you know, you get like points and um, gift cards and shit like that. And this was a manga survey. And it was supposed to be open to like 13 to 16 year old girls. So I lied and said that I was because I wanted to see what the survey was about. And I um, cut and pasted most of the content of it, which you're not supposed to do. But, you know, screw that. I did it anyway. And it's a really interesting survey. So the first couple questions are things like, first question, it's about comic books. And it tells you what a comic book is. Quote, a comic book is a short story told in words and pictures delivered in a thin stapled format like a pamphlet and typically found in comic book shops. In case you didn't know, comic books range in price from two to three bucks. Please indicate how often at all, if at all, you read comic books. You get to choose an answer. Of course, I'm checking off like every week. Uh, And then it tells you what manga is. Manga is a form of comics usually licensed from Japan. Japan is in capital letters. It is printed in black and white, read from right to left, and is packaged in a smaller sized book format. Please indicate how often, if at all, you read manga. And I lied about that. And I said, you know, every every week probably. And then it goes on to... uh, Define what a graphic novel is, asks you how much time in a typical week you spend reading all of these things, for how long have you been reading these things, and here's a great question, what is the name of the first graphic novel you ever read? And I really had to think about that, and uh, and I did the survey like a month ago, and I'm trying to remember what I actually answered, and I might have put down something like Watchmen, just because, um, and then there's a whole bunch of questions about how much you're planning on reading in the next couple of months. Then there are questions about uh, what type of graphic novel do you read? And they're classified as um, alternative independent fantasy TV tie-in, like Buffy, 
historical humor, political, romance, superhero, movie tie-in, science fiction, or other. It's quite a range there. Um, and then, you know, it goes on with more questions about how often do you read them? What's your favorite? What superhero character or characters do you like to read about the most? And uh, the list gives you X-Men, Superman, Wonder Woman, Teen Titans, Justice, Justice League, Green Lantern, Batman, Fantastic Four, and Spider-Man. So um, I think I actually had... Did I write one in? I might have just selected Teen Titans from that. Um, and then they, it gets into more detailed questions about different types of manga. How often do you read uh, the Yuri, which is girl-girl relationships, um, Yaoi, which is boy-boy relationships, teen stories, and they break it down into like shonen or shoujo related to movies or TV like Ghost in the Shell or related to TV shows like Ben 10 or Dragon Ball Z. Um, it's a really, really interesting survey. And I went through and I filled it all out and I was really, um, I was impressed by the questions that were asked because they were fairly detailed and the person or people who put it together are fairly knowledgeable about it. Um, and they asked questions, oh, right at the end here, it says, uh, which of the following conventions or trade show have you attended in the past 12 months? Anime Expo, Comic-Con, Heroes Con, Otakon, Wizard World, WonderCon. Um, which comic book, graphic novel, or manga websites have you visited? And they got, you know, um, DarkHorse.com, Megatokyo, Newsarama, Tokyopop, Viz, Wizard Universe, etc. So, cool stuff. So the point of me reading all this to you, besides the fact that it's really interesting to me, that this is a, a well-put-together survey and that I was able to fake my way through it, is that, lo, there is someone collecting this information. Somebody fielded this survey. Somebody spent a bunch of money to put this together, to hire the right people, to send it out there, to collect information, mostly about manga, but about comic books. Who did this? Where is this information going? I want to know who fielded this study and where those numbers are going to. I really, really, really want to know. I can't find out because I was just one of those anonymous people who fills out surveys. But I'm just dying to know who spent the money on it. And the fact that I, out of you know all the people, found this survey and filled it out shows me that there must be more surveys out there. This can't be the only one. Like I keep saying... Selling comic books is a business, and any business that is run like a business needs to know who they're selling product to. They don't need to cater to those people, but they need to know who's buying their shit. I mean, come on, it's business. That's the way you run a business and make money. So if DC and Marvel and the others are not paying any attention to demographics and trying to find out actual numbers on who is buying their product, they have their heads up their asses. And part of me just cannot believe that they are so ass-backwards that they wouldn't want to know this. There are ways to figure this stuff out. So anyway, I just wanted to update you all on that. If you filled out a survey that has to do with comic books or manga, please let me know. And if you know where this survey came from or who the results might have been going to, please let me know. You know, I, I do other surveys, and usually there's a what they call the reveal at the end, which tells you who it was for. You know, you'll answer all these questions about what kind of bananas I like to eat, and then at the end they'll say, now, if Chiquita Banana came out with this, you know, new type of fruit that didn't spot, would you buy it? And then you know that Chiquita was the one who put that out. And I couldn't tell from this whether it was a real manga place like Tokyo Pop or Viz or whether this was actually being put out there by, say, DC or Marvel. So uh, that was also very interesting to me that they didn't do a reveal at the end. So that's my little manga survey thing that I wanted to um, let you guys all know about because I thought it was just 
one of the most interesting things that happened. Um, and now, before I forget, uh, speaking of comic book, uh, comics, comics, what the hell am I saying? Cartoons on TV. So Foster's continues to be amazing. Um, I started watching another thing on Cartoon Network that's called Ed, Ed, and Eddie, which is really weird. Um, it's one of the few hand-drawn cartoons that's still on TV. And I can take it kind of in small doses. I like it because they break the fourth wall a lot, almost in every episode. And the characters will refer to themselves as being in a show and saying, oh, we have to get this done. The show's almost over, which I like. But aside from that, I was watching it. And I always watch the credits because I like to see who writes these things. And right at the front, one of the episodes said, storyboards by Keith Giffen. And I went, what? (laughs) Keith Giffen? Like Keith Giffen? So then I went on Wikipedia and looked it up, and it's Keith Giffen. He does storyboards for cartoons, specifically for Ed, Ed, and Eddie sometimes. And I just thought that was the weirdest damn thing. So, hey, small world. You never know where you're going to see familiar faces pop up in the world of cartoons and comics. So that just cracked me up quite, quite a lot. Okay, what else did I want to talk about up front? Well, I'm going to do the commercials now. So, um, as always, please shop at Comic Relief in Berkeley. It's a wonderful place to go. Um, I'll give a free plug to the other great place in Berkeley, which is Amoeba Music, which is kind of on the other side of town, so it's a bit of a walk to get there. But um, those two things pair up really well. But Comic Relief is your place to go. Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley, they have everything that you could ever want. They're going to be at WonderCon. They always have a presence there. And uh, I'm hoping to catch an invitation to whatever party they have to have this year because that would be cool too and as always the wonderful beautiful music that you hear through the show <clears throat> is by ginger Mayerson, and you should go to her site and download all of it and listen to it because it's just so fucking fabulous and go over to um the lincoln heights literary society and check out some of the reviews there too because there are always good things being reviewed including um gay porn and manga for those of you who are fans of that stuff So let me take a little break and hear some of that fabulous music. And then I have um, a couple of things to review. One thing that I actually uh, recorded a couple days ago right after the event because I wanted to get it all down. And with regard to that, let me, you'll you'll get this when I talk about it. But any movie that uses the names of comic book creators as characters in the movie is pretty much okay with me. And also, more to the point, any point that has a character called Jose Quesada and that character gets killed by having a subway train run over him and cut him in half is double okay with me. So I have a book here that Logan the Boy Wonder loaned to me, and it's called Teen Titans, The Future is Now. And I was really happy that he loaned it to me because, of course, I'm cheap, and that means I wouldn't have to buy it. Um, And he specifically loaned it to me because the first part of this is Superboy and the Legion, and he knows how much of a Legion freak I am. So 
this was good. So um, this is a, a graphic novel called The Future is Now, Teen Titans, and it collects um, four story arcs in here. And um, most of the writing is Jeff Johns, except for the first story is Jeff Johns plus Mark Wade because it's Legion. And most of the art is by Mike McCone, um, except for one story, which is done by um, Tom Grummet. So this was um, really interesting to me on a couple of levels. So <clears throat> first thing is, I haven't read Teen Titans in a really, 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 really long time. I mean, I've probably seen way more Teen Titans on TV in their little manga incorporate in uh, yeah, their version, then I've actually read the comic books in a long time. So I know characters and I know what's going on and um, that was fine. And then the Legion stuff is sort of kind of a crossover with the Mark Wade Legion stuff that's happening now, sort of. Um, but there was some stuff I didn't know. Um, and then uh, the stuff at the end where the Teen Titans um, meet up with all of the adults the adult superheroes, that some of that stuff I didn't really get either. So the point of this is that um, not having read a lot of these things, I, I had two major impressions. One is that I really liked it. I thought these, the first story anyway was really, really, really good. And despite the fact that my major second impression, I felt like I was really struggling to keep up with what was going on and figure out all the relationships between these characters and know who they were. I liked that. I thought that it was good. It was... Um, a good mix of stuff that you, I guess, would know if you'd been reading these series regularly. But there was enough old stuff that I could kind of use my old knowledge to figure out what was going on. And if, I, I did a little bit of referencing. I had to go to Wikipedia a couple times to look some stuff up. But not too much. And I, I really enjoyed the first story just on its own merits um, by knowing what the situations were and you know it's it's these guys all coming together to fight a bad guy and you know the bad guy is one of the um the <clears throat> excuse me he's one of the bad guys from the old legion comic books so that was really kind of cool and and you know the art was good and i love seeing all of the legion people there which is just pretty awesome um and i a lot of the legion people who were in it were people that I wasn't particularly familiar with, but, you know, like, it's the Legion, who cares? You don't have to know all that. Um, you just have to kind of accept that they all have weirdo powers and that they're in the Legion, and um, it's really hard to figure out who's calling who what, like, when they're using their names and not their superhero names, but I still didn't care. It was still good. So the villains in this are the Fatal Five, and it's funny because I was just reading some of those Fatal Five comics in the Legion archives, you know, they appeared back in the, this, the mid-60s, and here they are, still terrorizing people. So um, that was kind of cool. Um, so the, the story in the first part is that uh, the, Legion, the Legion has uh, the Superboy guy, Con, now, Connor, and uh, he somehow got pulled into the future, where the Legion is, and then he comes back in time to get the rest of the Teen Titans, and then they team up with the Legion to fight the Fatal Five, whose powers have been multiplied exponentially till there are many, many duplicates of them. And um, they have to use every ounce of their smarts to, to do it. And, you know, it's really good. It, it is really good to see them, you know, using their powers sort of to the utmost to figure all this out, and it's really cool to see the Teen Titans fighting alongside the Legion in this capacity. 
it was great. And there was, you know, the usual sort of Legion wise, wise cracky stuff that goes on there. And I like that too. It was all really well done. And there's big, big fight scenes, fight scenes that take up, you know, huge double page spreads, lots and lots of double page spreads throughout. Really pretty amazing. And the coloring is just beautiful. So I thought this was just a classic, classic story. You know, it's easy. It's good guys versus bad guys. There's people punching each other. There's electricity. There's shit blowing up all over the place. There's robots getting destroyed. There's um, the, the, the new Flash and his cousin running at a million bazillion miles an hour. There's time travel. There's weird, unstable things that suck people into them. It's just all really crazy. I loved it. What a great story. So that story segues into the next story, which is still part of it, which is that the Titans end up coming back to the present, but they kind of miss it. Uh, Instead of coming back to now, they come back 10 years from now, so just a little bit into the future. And it's a world that has changed after the whole crisis thing happened. So I've never read any of the crisis stuff. I've never read any of it, not even a little bit. And all I know about it is what I read on Wikipedia. So that was a little bit hard to uh, just come into that and not know what was going on. But I think I managed to pick it up pretty well. And, you know, yeah, I get the point. Something happened and now everything is really dark and creepy and gritty. And it's all like Frank Miller writes it all the time. Okay, I get it. Um, And the way that the the Titans have to figure out how to get out of this is pretty interesting. And, you know, the stuff that's supposed to be really violent and horrible is really violent and horrible. Um, That Superman in that future would use his heat vision to burn off somebody's arm. That's, like, really pretty disgusting. And it's portrayed as such. Um, And there's this tension between... um, the people that the Teen Titans become in this 10 years from now future and the way they are now. And they're all kind of saying, I don't want to be those people when I grow up. And how can we stop that from happening? And they think that they make a change in the timeline so that that doesn't happen. But, you know, you can't tell, right? (laughs) You do what you can and you hope that it doesn't turn out that way. So I have no idea what that all means in terms of continuity. Who knows? But it's a it's a good story. It's a really really good story, and it's also um, really well drawn. And um, you get to meet some other characters who I really didn't know. The Titans East and Captain Marvel Junior, who I really wasn't aware of before that. So that's all pretty freaking cool. Um, okay, so flipping through the book, and this particular story centers most around um, Robin who really does not want to become Batman, the horrible vigilante who like shoots people in the head with a 45 caliber gun. And he, he especially is um, the one for whom this matters the most. So that's pretty neat. I like that. Okay. The next story. Okay. This is the part where it starts to get not good for me. So there's a whole section of this one story where we're introduced to a new character, um, which is uh, Speedy, who is Green Arrow's, uh, daughter, I'm putting that in quotes because I don't know if she's really his daughter or just another protege or whatever. Um, so she comes to join Teen Titans and that's pretty cool and, you know, always happy to see another girl joining up with the team. But then the last bit of it I found extremely unsatisfying. It's a story that brings back Dr. Light, 
who is now the infamous Dr. Light, and I think as either Ragnell or Kalinar called him, he's now known as Dr. You know, Rape Rape McRapity, because that's all he seems to do. That's his purpose as a character. And he has kidnapped um, Green Arrow and decides he wants to fight all of the Teen Titans. Just the Teen Titans. He doesn't want to fight the adult heroes. And it's stupid. This story just seems stupid to me. He kidnaps Green Arrow. He taunts them, the Teen Titans. They come there. They fight him one by one, one by one, of course. They get their asses kicked. And we never really find out why this is all happening. All Dr. Light, Dr. Rapity McRape, Rape, all he keeps saying is, way back when, you taunted me so much, you made me feel like a fool. And now you'll get what you deserve. And and this point is repeated, no kidding, like five or six times throughout this story. That people keep saying, oh, he used to be such a clown and a joker. What happened to him? And then like two pages later, oh, we, we used to be able to defeat him so easily. What happened? And then three pages later, Dr. Light is going, I used to be such a clown and a joker and you defeated me. It's like, okay, I get it. But we never find out why. We don't find out whether he's been possessed by an alien or whether he got supercharged or there's no closure to this story whatsoever, except we figure out that Deathstroke is there at the end and that leads into the next story arc. But for me, I think it, it really sucks to have that kind of thing as the last story in a graphic novel because then you're left completely unsatisfied when you finish reading this book. Okay, I know it's supposed to make you buy the next book, but that's that doesn't work for me. I want a graphic novel. If it's going to have a story arc, I want the beginning, the middle, and an end. And if you're going to throw another story in there, it better be self-contained and not just kind of trail off into nothing and make me think, oh, shit, now I have to buy the next book just to find out what happens or I have to go on Wikipedia and look it up or go somewhere and find somebody's review of the next couple issues that came after this. So this just seemed very, very unsatisfying and I'm, I'm quite annoyed that they decided to end this the way it, they did by including what is essentially just one part of a much longer story as the last thing in the book. Really not good. So anyway, um, that was my review of this particular thing. Um, I have to say, one thing about the art is that uh, a lot of the male characters, well, especially on the cover, I have to say, it's most noticeable on the cover, um, Superman, Superboy, Superguy, I'm going to call him Superguy because I like that, is drawn posing like a male model, which is to say um, he's really flexing his lats without trying to look like he's flexing his lats. And because he's in this weird kind of um, curled back position, he's also trying really, really hard to flex his abs at the same time. And he's got to kind of lean his head forward a little bit and his arms are held very unnaturally out to his side. It's very much not quite a bodybuilder look. It's definitely more of a male model look. And he's sort of sullen and pouting at the same time. That made me laugh a lot. Um, In general, I like the way the women are drawn in here. You know, Starfire's got that dorky outfit that she barely is in. Um, But I like Speedy's outfit a lot. I think that looks pretty cool. And I like the way most of the uh, the Legion girls are drawn as well. Also pretty cool. So I, I pretty much enjoyed this right up until the end. <laughs> that I didn't like it anymore. And um, I'll probably be getting more of these if Logan decides to buy them. But I don't think I'll actually be spending my own money on them. Because as you all know, I'm far, far too cheap to be doing that. Okay, um, 
let me, um, well, let's just go to the tape. Let's go to the videotape on this one. This is something I recorded a couple days ago, and, and it's a, a review wherein my two worlds collide in it. And I think um, you will appreciate this for what it is. This is a movie review, but it's a different sort of movie review. It was for a movie I hadn't planned on seeing, but it just happened. I went out the other night to an event in, <coughs> excuse me, in San Francisco that was part of the sketch fest, sketch comedy festival thing that they have every year. And the reason I wanted to go was because um, Mike Nelson, Kevin Murphy, and Bill Corbett, three of the guys who did Mystery Science Theater, were doing a live performance of their current venture, which is called Riff Tracks. It's essentially Mystery Science Theater, but uh, disassociated from the movie, so it's legal. Um, if you go to rifftracks.com, um, which is R-I-F-F-T-R-A-X, you can download uh, MP3 files. You have to pay for them. And they are snarky commentary, just like Mystery Science Theater, that goes along with current movies and some older stuff as well. So you don't have to get the movie and the commentary all at once. You rent the movie or you play the version that you have on DVD, and there's some special things in there to help you synchronize <clears throat> the commentary with the movies, which I think is a great idea, and it allows them to do that treatment to much more... Um, recent movies or blockbuster things because on MST they could only get the rights to really crappy movies which was of course part of the charm of the show so they've been doing this and they've done some um, movies that that I like like Star Trek movies and done a great job and so I knew that they were going to do this live thing and I thought this is excellent so I got tickets and um, I went with one of my friends and it was great it was so much fun just to see them doing it live is a whole different experience than watching MST um, I've had a lot more fun watching MST with groups of people people than I have just watching it on my own, although I have watched it on my own a lot of times. So it was really, really cool to see them do it live. They're very funny. They sit on the stage with their scripts in front of them because it's not um, spontaneous. It is all scripted just like MST. And they had the movie projected onto a screen so you could see it. And they didn't say what movie it was going to be before it started. So we were all waiting and waiting. And um, Mike Nelson said something like, well, um, whatever movie we're going to do, it couldn't be as bad as Daredevil. And then he said, but we are doing Daredevil. And everybody started screaming. And they did Daredevil, which was pretty cool. So once again, worlds colliding. My love of MST and comics colliding right there. Now, I knew Daredevil was a bad movie, but I'd never seen it uh, just because I heard it was really bad. And I don't really like Ben Affleck. Uh, I don't like Jennifer Garner. I didn't really like any of the people in the movie. So there was no reason for me to see it. So now I've seen it. I was forced to see it because people made fun of it. And let me tell you, that's a really good way to see a bad movie um, is to watch professional jokesters and and witty people making fun of it as you're having to watch the badness of a movie that is as bad as Daredevil. So just a few comments about the movie, and then um, I'll tell you a couple of the jokes that they did. And in fact, they're releasing commentary on Daredevil soon. I think they're not releasing it now because they're touring with this show, but um, it is going to be available on Rift Tracks pretty soon. So Daredevil 2003, <clears throat> written and directed by a guy named Mark Steven Johnson, who I've never heard of before, but the fact that he has three names automatically puts him in serial killer category for me. Um, and Ben Affleck, haha, is the star. And Jennifer Garner plays his weird love interest. And Colin Farrell is in it as Bullseye. And uh, it's it's not even... 
Oh, Michael Clark Duncan is in it also as Kingpin, and apparently big controversy over that because he's black and the character is supposed to be white, whatever. Um, to me, this movie bore absolutely no resemblance to Daredevil that I knew and that I grew up reading, which was the John Romita version scripted by Stan Lee for the most part. Um, this is totally different. So, of course, I looked it up on Wikipedia and it says that uh, this particular movie was drawn more off of um, Miller's interpretation of Daredevil. So, whatever, I never read that. So, I didn't know that. And it didn't really make any difference because it's still a really bad movie. <clears throat> and as the Rift Tracks guys were pointing out, it has so many flyovers and establishing shots of New York that the movie would have probably been at least half an hour shorter if you had eliminated all those shots from it. They're really unnecessary. And the swoopy stuff that's supposed to give you this feeling of Daredevil swooping through the city is just like being on one of those um, roller coasters that do loop-de-loops. You know, It doesn't really give you the impression of flying effortlessly through the city like the effects in Spider-Man did. I thought that was extremely well executed. But here, it just makes you feel nauseous and a little headachey. So that was bad. And the whole character of Daredevil here is just, well, first of all, Ben Affleck doesn't really act. So you don't get any kind of emotional read off of him at all. He's just there. Um, and he's letting his hair do a lot of the acting was what I had assumed because he's got this sort of Hugh Grantish thing going on. And then the costume he wears, very leather fetishy thing, which was funny. They got a lot of mileage out of that for a San Francisco crowd. And, uh, he doesn't, as I remember the character being, he was very much concerned with justice and upholding the law. And in this movie, he's a complete vigilante who kills people. So there's pretty much a difference in character right there. Um, and the plot revolves around him uh, finding out that uh, the guy who Michael Clark Duncan is, is actually the kingpin. And um, Electra's dad getting killed and him trying to do that. And then Bullseye gets called in as a hitman and tries to kill him and blah, 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 blah. It's just, it was an idiot plot from the beginning. Um, so Jennifer Garner, again, one of those women that I really don't get what their appeal is. Other than that, she looks like a stick insect with giant inflatable tits bolted on. She has a really weird face. It's really long and her forehead is huge. You could put advertising up there and make a lot of money off of it. And her mouth has those inflated collagen lips that look like somebody just punched her in the mouth. So she really can't act much either and doesn't in this movie. So I didn't get her and I didn't get their romance. And really there's a, a sex scene in this, which isn't sex. You know, we're not seeing um, actual penetration, but it's kind of gross watching them slobber all over each other. Not very erotic. And people in the audience were definitely moaning and making sick noises, which I thought that scene pretty much deserved. So yeah, I don't get Jennifer Garner. Now I have to say about her character, um, she's presented as this martial artist who can go at it with daredevil and they have a really dumb courtship scene where they're trying to beat the snot out of each other on a playground and they're on seesaws and monkey bars and all this crap. So that was kind of silly, but she's established as being skilled. There's a scene later on in the movie where she thinks that daredevil's the one who killed her dad and she beats him up. She really, really beats him up and stabs him. Um, so that's showing 
how good she is, which I thought was good, showing a pretty strong character, you know, even though she's dressed kind of like a pole dancer. Uh, and then she goes up against Bullseye, who takes her out effortlessly. She gets in one shot where she sort of lightly scratches him across the cheek with one of her knives. But other than that, she can't put up any kind of fight against him, and he kills her. Of course, they brought her back for another movie, so I guess he didn't really kill her. But it was so ridiculous to show this extended fight scene of her and daredevil show her really beating him up and winning and then bullseye you know he just kind of breathes hard on her and she's dead so just that disappointing and you know colin farrell plays bullseye basically like a drunken irish guy which isn't too far from the truth and the rift tracks guy's got an awful lot of mileage out of that as well um i understand that frank miller has a cameo in this movie as a guy who gets a pen through his forehead as bullseye steals his motorcycle so we see a lot of bullseye mutilating people and you know uh pens through heads and uh pencils through throats and a whole bunch of other stuff that seems a little un believable to me i'm not sure that you could throw a pencil well i guess maybe you could if it was a machine but throwing a pencil hard enough to go into someone's throat and kill them i don't know and when he does that sort of thing when he's throwing like pencils and and paper clips and things at people they just kind of stand there dazed (laughs) like wouldn't you duck (laughs) or something i don't know i would and uh bullseye eventually gets his in the end um they have a big fight in a church, of course, because that's where you have to have those climactic fight scenes in churches. It's a rule. And uh, he gets a bullet through both hands. So then he ends up with stigmata, of course, because he's in a church and you have to do that. If you're having a fight in a church, you have to have some kind of Christ imagery or else it, you know, why have a fight in a church if you're not going to do some fight imagery there? So, um, that happens and then daredevil throws him through a window and he lands on the hood of a car ben Urich's car and i don't know if he's supposed to be dead or not i suppose they thought they'd bring him back maybe in other movies um so it was <laughs> a, a very jumbled and stupid plot and really bad acting and what's up with daredevil living in you know a tenement warehouse and sleeping in a hyperbaric or or not a hyperbaric chamber but um an isolation tank yeah he sleeps in an isolation tank and everything where he lives is made of stainless steel i didn't really remember that from the comic books at all but maybe that was a frank miller thing as well um so a couple of the really good cracks that the guys got in there's a scene in which daredevil uh realizes that uh, Electra thinks he killed her father and he's very upset about this and he goes back and he does a classic Citizen Kane-esque thing where he trashes his room and he throws stuff around and he knocks things over and he sweeps his arm across surfaces and does all this stuff and then he kind of stands there panting for a minute and one of the Rift Tracks guys being him says, well, that's all the acting stuff I know, <laughs> which is absolutely true. <laughs> That was really good. And then uh, I'll give away one of the best jokes of the night because it was just so funny. People cheered and clapped and Mike Nelson had to take a a bow for this. But there's a scene showing um, Daredevil in his Matt Murdock identity who has such super sensitiveness that he can tell the denominations of bills. So he's at the bank and he's picking up different bills and he picks up a $10 bill and he puts it in one pile and he picks up a $5 bill and puts it in another file. And then as he's picking up the $5 bill, one of the guys said, Hey, look, Ben folds five. 
And he was. He folded it right in half. And that was just such a perfect joke. Um, and it fit exactly in the rhythm of the movie. And it was funny. And people in San Francisco really loves Ben Folds because um, he's a great musician and he's done stuff with Shatner and all that. And it was just a perfect literal joke that happened right then and there. So that was brilliant. I laughed really, really hard at that. <clears throat> So I really liked seeing Rift Tracks do Daredevil, and I don't think I could see that movie under any other circumstances. You know, whose idea was it to cast Ben Affleck as Daredevil? Honestly, he's just so bad. I was reading on Wikipedia that they actually thought about casting Colin Farrell as Daredevil. I'm not sure that would have been the right choice either, but yeah, Ben Affleck as a superhero. You know, the deal with people who play superheroes is that if they're... They have to have some sort of unusual quality about them if that's who the superhero is. And Daredevil, Matt Murdock, you know, he's a lawyer. He's really smart. But he's also got these incredible skills because he's blind. And you have to see that in the actor. You have to see some standout, unusual, unique quality in them that makes you believe that they can be them. And Ben Affleck is just this kind of good-looking guy. He has no charisma about him in that way that makes him shine as a superhero. He's just so average and so ordinary. And for roles in which he's called upon to play a really average, ordinary guy, it works great. But he cannot do superhero. It's really the casting of Tobey Maguire as as um, Peter Parker was a really inspired choice because when he's being Peter Parker, he's absolutely believable as kid more or less who has this life that he has to deal with but when he becomes spider-man he really shows that transformation into the superhero that it's not just the costume and the jumping around and all that he he really takes on the spider-man persona the wise-cracking friendly neighborhood spider-man he did an excellent job at that and ben affleck just doesn't do anything as daredevil besides being kind of cranky and you know flipping himself through the air and punching people. So I found that to be sorely lacking. Um, so I don't really want to see Electra, and I probably will never see Electra unless the Rift Tracks guy do a version of it. So maybe that's the way I see all my superhero movies if they're bad ones from now on, is to just wait for Rift Tracks to do something with it, because it would make it a lot more enjoyable. Speaking of bad movies, I wanted to mention that Ghost Rider is supposed to be opening on... February 16th or something like that. And I will definitely be seeing that movie with Logan the Wonder Boy. Because we've been waiting like half a year for this. Ever since we saw the previews for it back when we saw, I don't know, Superman or X-Men 3 or something. So it looks terrible and I can't wait to see it. And our theory is that they're releasing it now because nobody remembers a movie that you see in the middle of February. They're just going to sneak it in there and hope that since nothing else interesting will be playing in the movie theaters, people will kind of go see it because they're bored. And then as soon as they see it, they'll go, that was pretty bad, but then they'll forget about it instantly and no one will talk about it. So it's a safe time to release a really bad movie. And and I think that's a very good theory. So um, you'll be getting a a review of that movie soon. Um, And Hopefully, I think in the next show, if I can get it together, I'm going to be reviewing um, two more bad movies. One is the Fantastic Four movie that Roger Corman did way back when. 
and also the well this isn't a bad movie i don't think is the transformers movie the old transformer movie um i was very kindly sent a promo copy of the 20th anniversary edition of the transformer movie and i'm going to be doing those reviews with david arroyo from the comic makers podcast so that should be really fun we can tear into them that fantastic four movie was pretty darn bad i didn't think it would be that bad but it was so let's hear it for bad comic book movies there are so many of them out there i could probably do a whole series of shows devoted to only reviewing bad comic book movies so if you've seen a bad comic book movie and you want me to know about it and and um think that maybe i should review it definitely send me some email and you know i'll put it on the list something out loud to you. I'm going to read you something. And I mentioned this before. I talked about a book called The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell, which I really like as a book. And, And one of the things I loved about this book really was the writing, that the writing is just so good. And you really don't see a lot of good writing on the market, especially amongst the bestsellers. So I was impressed with the quality of the writing and how appropriate it was for each of the scenes. I thought the characters' dialogue was just spot on. It really sounded like them. And there was one passage in particular that struck me as incredibly well-written, and at the same time, it captured a lot of language stuff that, that really appealed to me as a linguist. So I wanted to just read this to you. It's about a page and a half worth, and this is where it takes place in the book. It's about halfway through, and it's the story, um, as I talked about it before, is uh, a first contact story. So this group of humans goes to a distant planet, and they meet the native um, beings. And this is the scene in which they first start communicating with each other. So the main character of the book, Emilio Sandoz, is a Jesuit priest, and he's a linguist. And he's a language guy. In addition to being a linguist, he's a polyglot. And he's on this mission because everybody thinks he'll be the one who's able to communicate with them. And he does. So uh, this is just after they've encountered these beings for the first time. And he's talking with a child um, as as much as we can say what an alien child would be. A younger version of the adults whose name is um, Askama. And the other people who are here are his fellow travelers and their names are um, Jimmy and Sophia and Mark and DW, who's the titular leader. He's also a a Jesuit priest and George and Anne Edwards who are married. So that's just so you know, when their names come up, they're not really in it. It's all about Emilio here. So this is um, when they, he and this child, Askama 
are um, starting to understand each other. So I'm just going to read it, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I do, because I just I love this passage. Soon other children came forward, and their parents moved closer as well, until the two groups, alien and native, merged, enthralled, surrounding Emilio and Oscama, as he made pebbles and leaves and flowers multiply and vanish and reappear, gathering possible numbers and nouns, and more important, expressions of surprise and puzzlement and delight, watching Oscama's face as he worked, glancing at the adults and other children to check responses, already absorbing the body language and mirroring it in the dance of discovery. Smiling and in love with God and all his works, Emilio at last held out his arms, and Oscama settled happily into his lap, thick-muscled tapering tail curling comfortably around her, as she nestled down and watched him greet the other children and begin to learn their names in the tripled sunshine that broke through the clouds. He felt as though he was a prism, gathering up God's love like white light and scattering it in all directions, and the sensation was nearly physical, as he caught and repeated as much of what everyone said to him as he could, soaking up the music and the cadence, the pattern of phonemes on the fly, gravely accepting and repeating Oskama's quiet corrections when he got things wrong. When the talk became more chaotic, he took a chance and began to reply to the children in nonsense, mimicking the melody and general sound of the phrases with great seriousness, but no longer trying for accuracy. This tactic had worked well with the Kikuyu, but the Chuuk islanders had been offended. To his relief, the adults here seemed amused. Certainly there were no shouts or threatening gestures as the children shrieked and vied for the chance to have him talk to them in this hilarious and silly way. He had no idea how much time had passed in this manner, but, eventually, Emilio became aware that his back was cramped and his legs were paralyzed from Oscama's weight. Easing the child out of his lap, he staggered to his feet, but kept her hand in his as he looked around as though seeing it all for the first time. He spotted Jimmy and Sophia, who called to him, "'Magic! You held out on me, Sandoz!' for this was not in her AI program at all. He found Mark Robichaud next, engulfed in the crowd with a little one sitting on his shoulder so the child could see over the adults. And there was D.W., whose eyes, astonishingly, were brimming. He searched for George and Anne Edwards, finally picking them out, arm in arm, and Anne was crying too. But George beamed at him and called out, voice raised to carry above the ruckus the kids were making, "'If anybody asks, I'm a hundred and sixteen. Emilio Sandez threw back his head and laughed. God, he shouted into the sunshine and leaned down to kiss the top of Oscama's head and pull her up into his arms for an embrace that included the whole of creation. God, he whispered again, eyes closed, with the child settling onto his hip. I was born for this. It was the simple truth. Nothing else explained his life.
Gentle heart. 